Your feelings are not facts about the world. However, your feelings are real and mm. true. And I think that's the difference. It's like if someone tells you they have a feeling or they do have a feeling, that is true. That's 100% real. You are actually having that feeling and no one can tell you that you're not or that that's not valid. However, that feeling does not mean anything about reality. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multi-Amory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about the popular and oh-so-memeable phrase, feelings are not facts. In relationships and in life, it's easy to have emotional responses to challenging interactions or situations, but what if our interpretation of events isn't actually true, or put another way, isn't actually reality? We will talk about what this phrase means, what can happen when we do think that our feelings are facts. And uh, we're going to talk about emotional intelligence a little bit. Ooh. Yeah. Can I just jump in? I just kind of want to get this out of the way. Yeah. Um, because I know the three of us first started talking about this a few years ago when I was on a panel. And was on, that it? Yeah. I was trying I to remember so. like the origin you, of it on this it show. I've definitely that. mentioned it before, but that, this is the time that sticks out in my memory anyway, um, is that I was on a panel and I brought up this, uh, this notion of feelings are not facts. Um, someone else on the panel disagreed and he was very oh. much, no, no, no. I think feelings are facts. And the irony is I think we were both right is the thing. Mm. But you're Be- kind of talking about different things. You're talking about different you things. You were nickelbacking. Yes. You were yes. switch tracking. So no, I, they were switch tracking. Well, they were, yes. That's, this person was switch tracking, but whatever. Um, well, so what we'll get into in this episode is more talking about like, it, your experience of your feelings, how they can influence your decision making and your thoughts, and maybe how to not take them quite as seriously as a cold hard fact. Um, what this yeah. other person was talking about when he was saying, no, feelings are facts, was, I think, this idea of if, say, your partner comes to you and is saying, I'm feeling sad, or I'm feeling violated, or I'm feeling disrespected, it is a fact that they felt that. And so you don't get to dismiss that or to gaslight them or to tell them, no, 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 you misunderstood. You shouldn't have felt that way. And so it is kind of this funny thing where it's like, yes, it is a fact that someone feels their feelings. Those feelings themselves may not be facts. And that sounds like a weird koan, perhaps, but we'll (laughs) dive more into it a little bit later. Well, I want to propose maybe a a distinction to make there, because I have like in the couple of years since that panel have thought about that a lot of like how to how to describe that in a simple way, how these are kind of talking about two different things. And what I've come back to is this idea that your feelings are not facts about the world. However, your feelings are real and Mm. true. Mm. And I think that's the difference. It's like if someone tells you they have a feeling or they do have a feeling that is true, that's a hundred percent real. You are actually having that feeling and no one can tell you that you're not, or that that's not valid. However, that feeling does not mean anything about reality. Like it yeah. just 
is a feeling, which is real, but it's not necessarily describing reality. Yeah, or it might be that. describing yeah. your reality, but not all the realities <laughs> if we're getting into a quantum <laughs> in the multiverse. realm here. First of all, let's talk about what actually is a fact and what is a feeling, because I came across this uh, interesting article called Feelings Are Not Facts, A Dangerous mm-hmm. Confusion cool. from Huffington Post. Oh, it's really like intense. a romance novel. Oh, I, I was going to say A Dangerous <laughs> Confusion sounds like a Bond film to me. Uh, that, the oh, same, yeah. No, same I thing, like that. Really. I like uh-huh. that. But um, it, there was a really like fun uh, way of kind of like describing what a fact is and what a feeling is in this article. So I'm just going to read it. OK, a fact is a piece of data, 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 subject to objective, independent and sometimes scientific verification. A feeling doesn't have to meet any of these tests. We're all entitled to our feelings, but a fact or but facts exist outside of us. As Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan put it in years ago, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. Hmm. Whoa. Okay. Hashtag truth. So that actually was something that came up back in my days of, t- of tutoring logic and critical thinking. Um, Look at this lady. I wow. know. Well, it's, it's a very simple distinction that I think on the, to certain people seems very obvious and to others, maybe not so obvious. But when we're talking about breaking down an argument of just being able to distinguish those two things, that a fact is something like coffee is grown in South America, period. Something like South American coffee is the best coffee is not necessarily a fact. It's an opinion. opinion. It could be a feeling. It could be whatever. And, um, I don't know. I guess there's just something very, very fundamental and rudimentary about that, but it's still very important when you're thinking about, you know, listening to someone speaking to you and kind of talking with any kind of authority about something, about whether or not they're presenting facts or feelings or a mixture of both. Yeah, absolutely. So I did try to find like the origin of this feelings are not facts because I feel like it's been, I feel, gosh, (laughs) but yes, I I know that it's been coming up a lot recently. I feel like I see it all over the place on people talking about emotions just in general, or if they're talking about relationships. And I guess I traced it back to a Psychology Today article from 2013 called feelings are not facts. Hmm. Um, so that was kind of the earliest in terms of article forum that I found, but that kind of goes along with when we started the podcast. And I feel like almost immediately, Dedeker, you started saying this, like the feelings are not facts thing. Just started spouting it off. Maybe I read that article. I don't know. I or don't know where maybe. I got it from. <clears throat> or I have, I have heard a, a theory before that's maybe a little bit out there, but that, sort of humankind as a whole will often have like in multiple parts of the world, the same discovery or the same realization will be made that it's Mm. like, it was just time for this realization. I don't know. Interesting. It's a little woo woo. I know. I mean, if I'm looking at Google trends, which tracks Google search history over time, um, it suggests it's much older than 2013, actually, that it showed up at least as far as search terms goes, as far as um, September, 2005. Wow. Actually. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Very cool. Who knows? All Um, right. So why are emotions important and influential? Because we're not trying to suggest that they aren't. In fact, they actually really, truly are. 
um, even more than probably we would think. Yeah. So I think that a lot of us perceive that we have our emotional side and our logical side. And for some people, their logical side is much stronger. And for some people, their emotional side is much stronger. And I do think that's true. However, I do think that our supposedly logical brains are actually much more influenced by emotion than we think that they are. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, first of all, we suffer from carrying around this bias that we're much more objective than we actually are as human beings. And we all carry around the bias that like we are more objective than the people around us as well, Mm. um, which is, you know, uh, just not true. (laughs) Um, So there's a Harvard professor who estimated that perhaps even up to 95% of our purchasing decisions are based on emotions. And so even from everyday purchasing decisions to things like deciding things like political legislation or picking a potential candidate for a job or things like that. Um, And it's interesting about the purchasing decisions one in this book that I'm reading right now on, on neuroscience and Buddhist philosophy. They do find that you go to the store and like, let's say you're trying to buy a new laptop like Jace has been doing right now. Oh, like, yeah, yeah I'll use course, you as an example. Because Jace. every freaking year you've because got to buy a new laptop. Basically every three months, Jace buys a new That's laptop. That's not true. <laughs> okay, but definitely at least a year is if, true. If I could, though, okay. why would I? Okay, so Jace, you walk into a store and you're weighing up or all your, your virtual Amazon. Yeah, yeah. You're weighing up yep. all your laptop options. You're weighing up, okay, I have this much money that I want to spend. Like, this is going to be my budget. These are the things that I'm looking for. And literally, I am weighing them up too because traveling yes, weight, a lot weight, weight is, is a factor. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> so, seems like a pretty objective process, right? That you're weighing up. Like, okay, does this check the boxes of what I need in a laptop? Does this have the right specs? Does it have the right weight? Does it have the right price point? And then kind of like comparing and deciding. And then finally, you pick the laptop that you want to go with. Mm -hmm. And so from the outside, it can seem like this is a, a relatively objective, fairly rational, fairly logical process. But they find that actually there's a lot of emotion that goes into that. And they've literally like studied this with people where they brought people into a lab, gave them real world money, presented them with all these options of things to buy. And we're tracking kind of go. Yes. And we're (laughs) tracking what parts of their brains lit up as they were making decisions about what to purchase and what not. Um, And the thing is, the thing that we don't think of, it's almost like these micro level of emotions that actually influence our logical decision making. Like because when we weigh up the options objectively, we feel good about doing that. And we are measuring up the relative feeling of pleasure that we get from looking at a particular option against the relative feeling of pain when we think about paying for that thing, or when we think about how painful or less painful it may be to fork over either $1,000 or $2,000. And so there's feelings attached to that. And that is actually influencing our supposedly very logical, rational decision-making process. And so it seems ridiculous to be like, what? 95% of my purchasing decisions are emotional, but they really truly are. And then if you feel like you've gotten a good deal, you get this feeling of pleasure mm-hmm. in the fact that you've gotten a good deal, you know, and and now you're going to get to have this thing that you're looking forward to. And so feelings are very much interwoven into that process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, just to back that up even a little bit more here, uh, neuroscience professor Antonio Damasio did a study of people who had damage to a particular part of their brain that was responsible for experiencing emotion and as far as i understand it it's a part of the brain that that 
is is kind of what causes the body to actually have emotional responses. It's kind of about the physical feelings associated with having an emotion. And these people had damage to that part of their brain where they wouldn't experience that. And so they were kind of essentially less emotional, felt less kind of emotion on a moment to moment basis. And we all think like, oh, they'll be like the Vulcans and they'll be the best decision makers. Most logical. The most logical, the best decision makers. And the reality is that they were paralyzed by decisions about almost anything. That if it were truly just a logic problem where there's a clearly objectively right answer, they were fine. But most of our decisions aren't that. And so like decisions of like what to eat for lunch is just completely paralyzing or what Mm. clothes to wear because we're making all of those decisions emotionally on this very small moment to moment level physically um, Am I or, having a day where I want to wear red? Am I having <laughs> yes. a day where I want to wear black? Right, right. Like, well, or, yeah. but, okay, but I think you can think that you're being very logical about it because I get up in my day and I'm thinking like, okay, what do I need to do today? What's the weather going to be like? Is the weather likely to change? Am I going to go somewhere else where maybe I should wear different clothes? And I think that I'm deciding it all logically, but in the midst of all of that is also a lot of feeling that is influencing me in a particular way or another. Yeah. Yeah. And so on top of that, another reason why our feelings are extremely important and influential is that there are several studies showing that we not only feel our own feelings, but we tend to mimic the feelings and emotions of people around us. You know, there's, it's very obvious, I think, to see um, either things like mob mentality or pack mentalities, which is not always a negative thing, but it's this idea like you're at a football game and everyone's riled up and it's just much more exciting when you're there with everyone super excited or like, you you know, watching the release of Star Wars in a crowded movie theater full of Star Wars fans versus when you're watching it by yourself at home, that probably when you're in there in the theater with a bunch of other excited people around you, you're probably more likely to feel excited as well. Um, Or when you all see me cry on this podcast, you start crying. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or like seeing someone, especially someone close to you, someone that you loved start crying, that that can make you suddenly start tearing up as well or start feeling these emotions. So not only are we feeling our own feelings, but we're very subconsciously tuned in to the feelings of people around us. Yeah. So with all of that information, because obviously feelings are very important, emotions are very important and really dictate a lot of things that we do in our daily lives. But when we say something like feelings are not facts, what does that actually mean to each of us? Because Dedeker says it all the time. I think that I use it a lot in my daily life too. And I'm sure you do as well, Jace, in various ways. Um, so I guess I can start. I'm trying to think of like what it means to me because I do agree people out there, obviously anyone can have their emotion and have an emotional experience and it matters and it is real, but often we forget because of our own cognitive biases about what actually was intended, what the reality of the other person's situation is, you know, just to give like an example Often at work, I will have like kind of a terse interaction sometimes with with people who I'm waiting tables and giving their food and stuff. And, you know, often I'll be like, wow, that person is kind of an asshole. Like they're they must just be kind of a mean person or something. But the reality of the situation is 
they maybe they're you know maybe they just uh, got in a really big fight with their spouse. Maybe they woke up and haven't had their coffee yet. You know, anything could be happening to that person. So my interpretation of and the feeling that I get from that interaction, the feeling is real, but the reality of the situation and the idea that I have about that person may not actually be the case Hmm. based on, you know, just what my own emotional interpretation of that interaction is. So I think that's something for me to always be aware of when especially I get into heated discussions with my significant other or with any of my friends that I am bringing to the table my own personal cognitive biases and that they also are and that a melding of a minds kind of has to happen in order to figure out what the reality of the situation is. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I think for me, I and mean, we've talked about this on past episodes, but definitely trying to remind myself of just that I don't know what's going on for anyone else unless they tell me. Mm-hmm. And usually people aren't telling you their their day-to-day feelings and thoughts is that. But I think also kind of a different perspective on the feelings are not facts thing is I actually don't know where this quote came from originally, but something that uh, a lot of people actually take issue with this quote, um, but I have found it to be very helpful for me. And that's it's essentially boils down to <clears throat> like everything that happens in the world is neutral, that everything that happens to you is neutral. It's not good or bad. It's just your thinking and your feeling that makes it good or bad. And, you know, people get upset about that and they're like, but what, you know, like my, you know, child is sick. Like you can't tell me that's not bad. Um, and it it's, It's, I guess, Mm. getting a little bit Buddhist and philosophical about it, but just being like, these are just things that happen. That's not saying you shouldn't feel upset about it or that you can't, but just kind of reminding myself, at least, that I'm the one having these feelings about these things. These things aren't happening to me, like the universe doesn't center around me, um, and that everything is good or bad objectively based on how it affects me. Um, anyway, that's just kind of something I've I've thought about for yeah, my own life. So I feel like mine is a different flavor. Okay, <laughs> um, so many flavors. Mm, because okay. good when I tend to trot out feelings are not facts, I tend to trot it out on myself more often, honestly, um, mm-hmm. because I think I've found that. I will have a feeling about myself and it might be, I feel down about myself or I feel embarrassed or I feel ashamed or something like that. And having to remind myself just because I'm feeling this way doesn't mean that's a fact about me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I am a terrible person or that I should be ashamed or, or things like that. However, I also try to use it even in the, on the positive side as well, that I can also have moments of being like, wow, I'm great and I'm doing great and I'm really smart and really cool and <laughs> really good at life. <laughs> and and also having to remind myself like, okay, it's good to feel that feeling, like let yourself feel that and enjoy that. But that's also not necessarily a fact about you, that it's always going to be good or that you're always going to make like the smartest or the best choice in any situation. Um Mm. So I guess for me, it's about not getting too attached to particular feelings, um, either negative or positive, and especially when it has to do with stories about myself. Um, so mm. I guess we want to explore 
the reverse side of this of like, if we are seeing feelings as facts or experiencing them as facts, how can that influence us? How, you know, what happens to us in our interactions with others? And I know just an example could be, I think like M's example of dealing with that customer who's really terse with you, that <laughs> then you can pick up that ball and run with it of like, wow, this person is really me <laughs> yeah. and had a problem with me, you know, I think can certainly be mm-hmm. what the story turns into. So you can experience this anxiety or this upset over a prolonged period of time, just based off of this very tiny and brief interaction with someone. Um that again, you know, you can yeah, really it can affect your entire day. Yeah, yeah, that you can really run with a story of like, gosh, like maybe they had a problem with me or did I do something wrong? Or gosh, why would they choose to pick on me? Like what a bully, you know, when again, you have no idea what the reality is. And so it's kind of like that feeling that came in that moment of feeling upset or feeling shocked or whatever it was, then turns into this whole story and then turns into the way that we behave for the rest of the day or toward that particular person. Yeah. Um, another yeah. one that comes up is <clears throat> that emotions can lead to logical fallacies in debates or arguments, or even just when we're trying to do our own reasoning for ourselves. And this is something that I personally have found is is especially dangerous. That sounds so serious. Sometimes it actually is dangerous, but is particularly... Would you, would you say that it was a dangerous confusion? I, I might say it was a dangerous confusion. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> coming to theaters this, this summer. romance novel or whatever. <laughs> or yeah, whatever. James Bond film or whatever it is. No, I think it's going to be like James Bond reading, oh, yeah, reading a go. romance novel. Because oh, it see. is also confusing for the audience as well. <laughs> right. Everyone's confused. Yeah. <laughs> this is dangerous. This is a confusion. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that it's particularly dangerous when we think of ourselves as someone who is logical mm-hmm. or when we think we're being very logical. Um, and so it's basically like logic and logicking through something is a really useful tool for examining our beliefs or examining our decisions, but it's not an infallible way of making those decisions in the first place necessarily, or deciding on our beliefs or, you know, or arguing them or arguing against someone else's decisions or beliefs. It's like a useful tool for examining them, but it's not infallible. And the reason is that we have emotions and that we have a lot of assumptions we make about the world and things that we think of as universal truths about the world that we're not even aware of. And we kind of have to have those to even function as a human being. So it's not to say like the goal is to get rid of all of those necessarily, but I think that people who think of themselves as very logical, I will often look at them and this tends to come up with straight men. The most is who mm. I notice doing the logic this. bros, the mm. logic bros. And I'll, I'll watch them. You know, they'll, they'll talk to me and complain to me about something they're frustrated about with their partner or about people in the world. And they're, they think they're being very logical in explaining why they feel the way they do and why they do the things they do and why they reacted this way to this person and all that. And I'm sitting there listening to them going, okay, if you're, actually being logical and really looked at what's happening here, you've made an incredibly illogical choice Mm. to act the way you've acted, which is going to 
hurt someone else, make them like you less, deteriorate your relationship with them, give you less credibility, cut off your ability to learn from anyone else, just like all of these things that your decision has done that you think you're so logical and you're so proud of. And really, it's just this way of patting yourself on the back and thinking you're better than everyone else okay. when it's actually very illogical. Yes, because I do think that people can really attach to logic and logical thinking. And when it's really, when really what it is, is kind of identifying with like, oh, I think that my way of thinking is the correct way. Mm -hmm. I'm such a logical person because <clears throat> I'm correct most of the time. Again, not examining that it's then, like, and that's a logical fallacy yeah, in and of itself. Yes. Saying like, "Well, I'm I'm logical, and most of my thinking is correct. So this thinking mm -hmm. that that I'm talking to with you about must be correct." Yeah. Yes. Exactly. It's it's like not even being able to see the water that you swim in. You know, mm -hmm. is influencing yeah. even your definition of what logic is. I mean, I had a partner who is like a textbook example of this, that it, all the time he brought up logic in arguments because it would always be situations like, well, why would you make plans to go see this partner at this time? Um, you know, at the time though, it upset me most. That's just not logical. Um, like, you, yes. What? <laughs> what? Yes. It's okay. We're not what together an anymore. What is upsetting time in which to see someone? Well, right. but I, so I kind of well, like... 2 p.m. is an objectively upsetting time. Well, yes. So, so yes. So it was that thing. It was this <laughs> idea of like, I have the sense of objective reality. And so if you're doing something that upsets me or like goes against my expectations, like that's clearly, that's not illogical. logical. That's yeah. not logical that you would do that. Um, uh, anyway, I... You're like, but I did. So... There are many other problems with that that we don't have to get into that. Let's talk more about logic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think sort of the, then the secondary thing that happens then when you ignore your own emotions and their factor in your decision making and in your thoughts and in the assumptions you make about how the world works and how people work, that you'll end up getting into this cycle where then you're using what you think is logic to just back up why you feel a certain way and never have to question that, never have to change it, never have to, you know, actually accept what someone else is saying. You only listen to it enough to pick out the parts you need to argue against it or to, to back up your own argument. And so it, it really gets into this cycle. And I, 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 I hope there's some people out there hearing this going, yikes, this might be me because this has 100% hmm. been been me in the past. So yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and so really like, Oh yeah. All of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just a, a lot of the people I know who think of themselves as so logical, I would love if they would <laughs> examine that a little bit more. Um, so some of the particular logical fallacies that we pointed out, there's a whole list of logical fallacies and maybe we should do a whole episode about logic at some point just for fun. Um, but sure. some, yeah. <laughs> some key ones that can come up here because of your emotions. Um, the first one's called cherry picking and that's what I was just describing. It's where you only pick out things that support your argument, um, often based on feeling based on, well, I feel that thing's true. So I'm going to, pick that out or you said this thing that upset me. So I'm just going to grab that one and ignore all the other things that you said. Um, another one is appealing mm. to majority. If this is just because everyone else does it, it must be right. Or there must be something true to this because of the fact that everyone's done it this way. I think also tradition falls into that so too. Maybe this idea of like, it feels comfortable or it feels normal because everyone else does this as well. And so therefore... It is okay. Yeah. 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 Or like, well, most people do it this way. So I'm okay. I, I'm fine to do it this way too, rather than actually just questioning it. Um, and then 
sometimes going along with that or supporting it is two different ones. One's called appealing to ignorance and the other is misplacing the burden of proof. And that's basically using a lack of information to either support your argument or to tear down someone else's argument. Um, this one comes up a lot with things about polyamory, um, where it's just there's not a lot of research on it. There's not nearly as much data that even is gathered with an open mind toward that. And a lot of the research that is done is already based on assumptions about how relationships should work or how they do work or what an ideal relationship looks like. And so kind of a lack of information can be used as a way to say like, oh, well, obviously this thing's not good because there's no research on it or there's no proof of this thing. So therefore it's not real. Um, and then uh, the last one we wanted to mention here is called ad hominem, which is Latin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. what, what else would it be? Well, I'm always, I'm always confused about what's, what's Latin and what's, what's Greek. You know what I mean? Because they're both like they make up the roots of a lot of our words. Yeah, but this is definitely Latin. <laughs> this one's Latin for sure. Um, and that's basically Obviously. <laughs> basically invalidating something that someone says because of an emotional assessment you've made of their character. Mm. Saying, you know, th this person says, um, well, you know, I, I think that people should be respected and allowed to have whatever gender that they identify as. And another person invalidates that rather than actually addressing it itself invalidates it by going like oh well that's typical you like always wanting to find something to complain about or you know something that we have to change to make you comfortable it's that type of argument that maybe of all of these is the most obviously like emotionally based just that's yeah. purely your emotion that's purely your emotional characterization mm -hmm. of someone yeah so in terms of other things that uh, can happen, if you view feelings as facts, um, you can often go to more like toxic or harmful behaviors based on your assumptions of what actually is happening in that situation. So things like withdrawal, things like denial, even things like excessive anger and name calling, that can happen again when you don't stop. Uh, kind of take a breath, take a minute to assess the situation. Um, it can be sort of like a, a reactionary thing that occurs as opposed to sitting and breathing and kind of making a, taking a moment or halting even before right. you act. Right. And also treating feelings as facts, it can lead to things like personal bias. Um, I, I personally believe that emotion plays a lot into... Um, sexism, racism, things like that, that like the feelings that we learned very early on to attach to this particular person then influences the way that we treat this person and kind of influences yeah. the facts that we have in our head about this, this person or type of person. Um, it can uh, really put fuel in the fire of our bad habits. Um, and it can also contribute to there being resentment in relationship. And the specific example that I'm thinking of here is that sometimes, um, you know, if you treat your feelings as facts, it can kind of be this sense of like, well, let's say when my partner doesn't pick up after himself, like I feel really neglected and I feel disrespected and I feel abandoned. And if that happens repeatedly over time, it can turn into a fact for you of like, my partner mm. is neglecting me and abandoning me and disrespecting me when maybe the whole time your partner is just like 
doesn't even think about these things or never realized it was a problem or never saw that you were doing all this labor to pick up after them, you know, and doesn't have an intention of of doing any of those things. Um, And so it's definitely something where it's like feeling that's unexamined or unchecked can influence these stories, can influence the stories that we tell about other people and, and about ourselves and can really put... Um, what just really, um, I guess, uh, skewed filters on the way that we interact and the way that we see the world. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, touching on a little bit what you had said about bad habits, because I feel like cyclical sort of uh, patterns occur often in relationships. Like you may keep going back to the same argument over and over in a relationship. And that can be because these things are being left unexamined. Uh, it, it You have your own cognitive bias and your own idea of what is happening in this moment. And you continue to like run headfirst into the situation with that same thinking. And instead of one of the two of you deciding to change that thinking or deciding to examine it further, you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. This has happened to me a ton in my relationships. I think it probably happens to most people, but it is something to really be aware of because if you're not going to fix that pattern, then what are you doing? Mm -hmm. You know? And oh. that can keep coming up over and over again. Just another little gem I want to throw in there from yeah. this, oh, this neuroscience and Buddhism book um, uh, that I think also supports this idea of like, even when you think you're being very rational and, and logical, that you potentially are being quite emotional is the thing that our emotions, our feelings are the mechanism that helps our brain to know which thoughts to think first essentially, Hmm. which sounds a little bit nuts because think about the fact that your brain is processing a ton of information all the time and it's thinking thoughts all the time and um, our feeling attached to particular thoughts is what essentially bumps particular thoughts to the top of the queue, you know, Mm -hmm. that are going to be the thoughts that are more likely to take our focus in that moment, you know? Um, Yeah. And so it's like, even when you think it's like, well, I'm just thinking everything through, it's like, no, there is kind of this feeling engine that Mm. is attached to every single thought and your brain is categorizing like, this is a feeling level five, this is a feeling level four, this is a feeling level two, you know, and that is going to influence the way that you even think through something, even if you think that you're just kind of looking at all the facts and evaluating them in that way. Reminds me just real quick of something I remember learning about the media um, and some studies done about like, does news media affect people's opinions about things? And in this particular study, yes. well, in this particular study, they found that news doesn't actually have a huge impact on on what people think about something, but it has a huge impact on what we think about, period, hmm. of like what's even worth thinking about or and which then based oh. on what you choose to get people to think about, you can then affect their opinions and their thoughts about things. Hmm. Um, but rather than like the news is telling us what to think, it's telling us what to think about. Mm. And I think that's interesting. It's that like you were talking about with that emotional, like, well, my emotions are telling me what to think about. And I might think yeah. I, I have my own opinions and my own thoughts about these, but even what you're thinking about is being emotionally driven. It's really interesting. Wow. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. 
And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. So there has been some research done on why feelings are not facts, why emotional uh, occurrences can be construed as facts, but that they actually are not. So there is a neuroscientist out there called, called her name is Lisa <laughs> Feldman Barrett, and she's the author of How Emotions Are Made. Um, so she studied the facial expressions of people against the emotions that they were actually feeling. So basically, she took a big group of participant, participants and she asked them to identify the emotions of a particular person's face. And what she found is that a bunch of people just consistently got the emotions incorrect. Hmm. So you would look at a face, you would say, okay, like this is anger, clearly, or this is frustration, or this is sadness. And often like those emotions would not be actually what that person was feeling. So they would make these assumptions based on their own personal biases, and they would then confuse things like fear uh, with anxiety or something along those lines. So that's really interesting because I think that most of us out there would be like, oh, I know what an emotion is, or I know what is going on in a person Mm -hmm. just by looking at them. But she's essentially saying that that isn't true at all. Or assuming that other people know what we're feeling by our face. Yeah. True, yeah. That's perhaps or by our body language or whatever. That's perhaps the more dangerous of the confusions. Um, Indeed. And it is interesting. So this neuroscientist called Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, <laughs> that, she, that she says the expressions that we've been told are the correct ones are just stereotypes and people express in many different ways. So I take that to mean that really news flash the only way to accurately recognize an emotion in another individual is to ask them what they're feeling um mm-hmm. because often in the moment your perception of what another person is feeling can actually be entirely incorrect and i i run into this all the time in really inane and mundane ways uh, particularly with jace that jace whenever you look at your phone you look so stressed out and oh, disturbed man. and you're like what and maybe What's happening? maybe a yeah. little bit angry also and i'm always like oh my goodness what is going on and you're like oh i don't know you're fine it's great you know like, <laughs> yeah i'm like oh, i was just trying to read this text yeah I'm like, maybe i need to wear my glasses more often i don't know what it is but <laughs> apparently i look you, very like, stressed your out. brow mm-hmm. and yeah yeah well, Jace, you were you were talking to me about when we all went on this silent retreat together, and mm. of you checking out 
our faces, like our resting faces, essentially, and trying to extrapolate what it was that we were feeling in a particular moment. Yeah. Yeah. Just that idea of what's your neutral expression even is interesting. Exactly. And Elisa Feldman Barrett talked about like resting bitch face as well, which is Mm. an unfortunate term, but it's something that a lot of people will say about I guess, women Mm -hmm. and say like, oh, well, she has a resting bitch face. She must be a bitch or something along those lines. But Lisa Feldman Barrett said like, that's just a neutral expression. Mm -hmm. It means nothing like that is something that we've studied onto it. Exactly. You can't infer anything from somebody's face. Like mostly, you know, usually that is just a neutral expression. Yeah. I remember learning about this a little in college when I was in a um, music education class and I was, you know, doing some like student teaching at a high school. But in the class, um, basically we were talking about that of like, what is your neutral resting expression? And to know what that signals to people, um, which is interesting, mm-hmm. it's kind of an aside, but they, they kind of encouraged us to try to sort of evaluate each other and like, what do we get from your neutral face so that you're at least aware what students might think you're thinking about them while you're actually not thinking anything at all about them. Interesting. Um, so yeah. it is interesting. Anyway, that's just an aside. Um, yeah, I did want to point out with this thing of like that we don't really know what people are thinking. Um, that, you know, we, we watch shows like lie to me, if anyone watched that yeah. or, or Sherlock, um, is a good example of this or, or any of the other shows like that, um, house kind of did stuff like this, but wherever you have this person who's like super observant and the fiction is that they're able to just sort of like always know what people are thinking and read people perfectly. And the truth of it is that, um, like if you read, uh, the book Telling Lies by Paul Ekman, who is one of the people who first discovered micro expressions and things like that. Um, he talks about basically that you can learn sort of like you can learn to identify emotions and micro expressions and things that are kind of like leaking through, but what you can't ever learn how to tell is what they mean. Hmm. Like you can't ever know why a person just felt that, disgust yeah. or that happiness or that whatever you can make guesses he but it's tries really just to guesses. figure that out on the show but yeah but that's the fiction is that in the show it's like you you just know what those mean and that's the problem i think is that we then identify with those characters and we assume we can do the same thing that we assume yeah. oh if i identified an expression i must also know what it means and why they're feeling yeah, and it. that's and bullshit. that's not true um, all right. To, to bring it back to the next point, though, is that at a young age, we're taught emotional concepts by our parents and babies can feel things like distress or happiness or maybe fear, but more complex emotional concepts such as like hearing terrible news and being upset about that is something we have to learn. Like if you think if you tell yeah. a baby who's like maybe could understand the words you're saying, but about some even a small child often right. like before they've had this concept uh, taught to them. Yeah. yeah. You tell them about some tragedy or something and it's just like, okay, mm. you know, yeah. maybe, maybe they'll see that you're emotional about it, but like they don't, 
we have to kind of learn how to have that sort of reaction. That's really interesting because I feel like that helps explain to me this weird arc over the course of my life where I feel like when I was much younger, I could watch much more disturbing things oh. or read about much more disturbing things without getting as upset as when I were do you now. doing that when you were young <laughs> well okay here's an example is i don't remember how old i was when i went to the holocaust museum in washington dc but i was mm. i was not quite a teenager i think i was maybe 12 or something um and i went with my sister who would have been 20 or 21 and I remember going to the Holocaust Museum with her and having the understanding of like, this is really tragic. This is really sad. This is really horrible. But seeing my sister, who was just like in tears the whole time, you know, just yeah. like gut wrenching tears. And I remember as a child being like, yeah, I understand that it's sad, but kind of feeling this weird disconnect from my sister who was really emotionally moved by it. And now when I think back about the Holocaust Museum and think about some of the stuff I saw there, it makes me want to cry now. You know, yeah. and so I feel like that was part of that of kind of like not 100% fully learning this emotional response to something of this kind of gravity. Mm. Perhaps, I don't know. I'm sure there's other factors that influence that as well, but that is interesting. Well, it yeah, in this uh, specific article, too, they were talking about how different. Uh, people don't have the language for specific things that we do here in, you know, in America, in the English language. So like the, the term sad might mean something completely different or some other uh, language might not even have that word. Uh, and so the emotion, the complexity of that emotion might be different mm. than it is for us in the English language, those of us who know English or who have a similar word to an emotion like sad, someone else may have something completely different and a completely different interpretation of what that is. Yeah, no, that's such a, I hadn't even considered that so clearly, but that makes a lot of sense with learning Japanese. Mm -hmm. And there's emotions like hazukashi. Oh, like natsukashi was what I was thinking. Or natsukashi, yeah. both. But, so hazukashi, we translate usually as like embarrassment. It's like being uh -huh. embarrassed, but the nuance of it's a little different. And so people like I like there was an old woman trying to pick up her bike to put it on a bike rack and she was having trouble getting it over this chain and picking it up. And I, I went over and helped her lift, lift it up. And her response was like, oh, Hazukashi, like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Mm. And I'm like, I don't think that's what that means. That like the nuance of it's a little different. Yeah. What is the nuance? Well, it's, it's not just embarrassed, but it's also kind of vulnerable. I found hmm. because, because yeah, it's come up for me in situations of like when I was having like a really intimate and vulnerable conversation with someone that I was dating and who was Japanese. And he asked me if I was feeling Hazukashi. And it was kind of a weird thing where I was like, this isn't something I'm embarrassed about, but it is a very vulnerable thing. And so that's interesting. interesting. No, but not, just to think that then people who speak Japanese they might have, just have a have whole different feeling. understanding of yes. totally. what one could feel in this moment. Yeah. For me, yeah. it's Natsukashi, which is usually translated as nostalgia. But mm. I feel like it's not quite that. It's it's not just nostalgia. And it's it's like this positive sense of like longing or missing an object or a thing from your past, but it's, it's like a positive appreciation of it. There's, I think it's not quite so tinged with like the sadness. Mm. Maybe I shouldn't have said longing. Cause I think there's less of like the sadness and longing, but it's more of that sense of like, like Oh, that thing. It's like yeah. all the positive nostalgia. Like, Oh wow. This feels so good to re-experience this or to taste this again or whatever. Um, yeah. which yeah, I, I mean, think it's is interesting. 
Well, it's fascinating because like we're even trying to parse out like what that emotion would mean, but it's even difficult for us to do that because right. again, we just don't have a word for it in our language. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's a whole nother freaking layer to think about when that when, you know, having interactions with people who maybe aren't native to your language. So there's this little concept known as emotional intelligence. And by little, I mean not that little, because I think at this point, a lot of people have heard of the concept of emotional intelligence. Um, It originally came from these researchers, uh, Peter Solovey, who is currently the president of Yale University, and John Mayer. A bit of weight in. Yeah. Wait, not the world to change. Not the singer. Not the singer. <laughs> um, a different John Mayer. Um, okay. But it was popularized by author Daniel Goleman in his book that was simply titled Emotional Intelligence. He's since published 200 other books, not 200, <laughs> many other books about emotional intelligence. Right. Yeah. So he describes it as the ability to recognize, understand, and manage our own emotions, recognize, understand, and influence the emotions of others. In practical terms, this means being aware that emotions can drive our behavior and impact people positively and negatively, and learning how to manage those emotions, both our own and others, especially when we're under pressure. Hmm. So that's kind of his little description of it. Spiel on it, yeah. Yeah, and he also talked about five key elements in emotional intelligence. So these elements can really be used in like your daily life. They can be used in dealing with your coworkers or uh, rowdy clientele at your job. In my case, rowdy um, clientele, and also indeed, and also in dealing with like a tense moment with your significant other. So the first element is going to be self awareness. So this really just includes like being able to personally identify. Uh, your strengths, your weaknesses, uh, having humility, also understanding when you personally are wrong in a situation, understanding how you view yourself, how you view the world around you, and having awareness for how you act, um, how you choose to act based on your personal views. So ways to promote this, ways to kind of encourage self-awareness can include things like meditating. We talk about that a lot on this show. Even things like yoga, I mean, that's more of a a physical activity, but I think that it can bring self-awareness into you. And it can also, it's also been proven to help you um, just feel better. If you're having a shitty day, go for a freaking run. Like it can, those endorphins will will definitely help. Um, Also, you can do things like journaling. When we were on our meditation retreat, I don't think I've journaled more than during that time, but it definitely helped uh, in terms of self-awareness for sure. Yeah. And just to clarify here with meditation, this doesn't mean just meditating to relax, which I think is what a lot of people associate with it. But this is more the type of meditation where what you're doing is you're trying to become more aware of the things you are thinking or the things you are feeling Mm -hmm. and just sort of being curious about those. And that is very literally just trying to be more self-aware, right? right? Being more mindful of just like, what am I actually thinking? What am I actually feeling? Instead of just taking those for granted of just like, oh, those, those happen. I'm, I'm not aware of it. Yeah. And And curiosity was something that actually came up to, um, with all of these that like a sense of curiosity was Mm. also another element of being, um, emotionally intelligent, which I think is really cool. Right. So the next key element of emotional intelligence is self-regulation. So that's the ability to take a breath, take a pause, the ability to assess a situation before acting on it. Um, so people who don't self-regulate or have a hard time self-regulating, um, 
can sometimes end up, you know, engaging in name calling or lashing out or doing really rash, quick emotional decision making um, or compromising your values in a moment. Um, and so that's why it is important to really build that muscle of being able to take a few breaths when a surge of emotion comes up so that it's not this instant, like I feel this surge of emotion. And then the first thing that comes out of my mouth immediately is an attack or calling you a name or something like that, but being able to take a few breaths before acting, holding yourself accountable for both your feelings and your actions, uh, being able to halt in a particularly challenging or a particularly emotional situation, or finding ways to express your emotions in a healthy way. Because um, self-regulation does not mean just self-repression. I believe it doesn't mean you feel it and then you just tamp it all down. It means being able to be honest and express those emotions, but in a way that isn't just letting the full force of those emotions just kind of like land on the other person in a destructive mm -hmm. way. I found that one particularly comes up for me um, when talking to customer support or trying to like get through some sort of call <laughs> line, you yeah. know, when I have an issue with something and it's that what I, what I've tried to really do is to still tell them how I'm feeling, but without dumping it on them mm. to just kind of, you know, I'll take a breath and be like, okay, I understand this is just your role right now, but I want you to know that I'm furious right now about what's happening or whatever it is. Right. And like, I want you to know that and be aware of it. And I'm going to try not to take that out on you. I've even been just like super upfront with them about that. Mm. Um, and I have found it's helpful and I'm sure they appreciate it because most people probably just yell at them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's good. Um, all right. The next one we have here is motivation. And this is basically being motivated to be better. So this is having a high standard for the quality of your life, for the work that you do, for your relationships, being motivated to become a better person, to always be improving yourself, to re-examine why you care for a particular person if you're having challenges with them, to practice gratitude in your life or your relationships, to, I would say this could also go back to like doing things like meditation or journaling, like being interested, being motivated to get better, um, basically constantly striving to be the best that you can be both for yourself and for the other people in your life. Um, you know, finding new skills that can help you in your communication. So the next one is going to be empathy. And this is a huge one, one that we talk about a lot on this podcast, one that I try to implement into my daily life all the time, just because it's it's difficult to sometimes see what another person is going through or even see like what they're experiencing because you may have a person in front of you having a really strong emotional reaction and then that causes you to have a really strong emotional reaction and it just is kind of ping-ponging back and forth between the two of you. But if one or both of you can have empathy and have the ability to put yourself in another situation or in their frame of reference, then that will enable you to be able to act towards that person with understanding. So this is kind of more esoteric, but if you can just sort of practice looking at the bigger picture, try to see what the other person's point of view is, try to understand the reaction based on that standpoint, and then also respond to the person's feeling from that understanding. Or just even say something like, you know, like, I understand what you're going through. Like, I, I get you in this moment. Like, I can, I can see how frustrating it is for you. And even just acknowledging that, I think, is really powerful in a situation where you're having, like, 
maybe a standoff with your partner or Mm -hmm. something to just take a breath and be like, hey, like, I see that you're really hurting right now. It may be challenging for me to understand that from my point of view, but I I get it. And, you know, I'm here for you. Yeah, well, like something we've talked about on previous episodes of, of being able to go to a place of saying, yeah, like from my point of view, I feel differently, but I totally understand that if if you perceived the situation this way, I would also feel hurt or I would also feel betrayed, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so just Mm -hmm. demonstrating this idea of being able to understand your partner's feelings, even if their feelings are maybe not a fact about what actually happened in the situation. Sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. This one just reminded me of a real quick quote here. This is from Captain GM Gilbert. He was was the (laughs) army psychologist assigned to watch the defendants at the Nuremberg trials uh, after World War II. Yeah. And um, his quote is, uh, you know, in my work on this, I was searching for the nature of evil. And I think now I have come close to defining it a lack of empathy. Hmm. It's the one characteristic that connects all the defendants, a genuine incapacity to feel with their fellow men. Evil, I think, is the absence of empathy. I've always thought that quote was really powerful. And um, anyway, just wanted to throw that in there since we're talking about empathy. Thank thank you for that. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And then the last one of these five key elements, the last one is social skills. And by social skills, we don't mean you're great at like starting conversations or you're the life of the party or you're super extroverted or you're great at picking up people to go on dates. Like that's not quite what we mean by social skills, but it's kind of more just being able to communicate Um, you know, being able to communicate with the people around you about your feelings, um, being able to communicate your perceptions accurately to the people around you. Um, people who have these kind of good social skills, they're adaptable. They're not afraid of change. They can resolve conflicts in a diplomatic fashion, and they can also set an example for others with their own behavior. Um, and so ways to do that is you can rely on like communication hacks, you know, especially if you're like a socially awkward person, or if you grew up in a situation where you didn't have the best models for how to communicate with other people around you. You know, you can use communication hacks, things like the Triforce or NVC or Radar. Um, you can learn about conflict resolution. You can learn how to recognize and praise your partner or your friend or your coworker when they also communicate effectively. I think that's a big part of it, too, is also learning to indicate to others when they've done a good job of communicating with you, not in like a patronizing way, but in a kind of a sense of like, oh, when you communicated this way, I think I really understood what was going on. And so this is an effective way to communicate. Um, Or even just if they're clearly working on those skills, if they're working to get better and you mm. see that it's like, hey, like, I know that this has been difficult for us before, but I really see like the progress that both of us have made in this way. Definitely. Yeah. So... Uh, We hope that all of these things came in handy for you today. I'm really interested to know what people think of this episode. Um, If they themselves have found that they will see like feelings as facts and how that kind of is interpreted in their relationships. And if that's maybe something that they, you know, want to think about from time to time. And then also if they use any of these things within emotional intelligence in their relationships and in their daily life. So the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook or Discord chat. You can get get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. 
In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Leave us a voicemail at 678-M-U-L-T-I-0-5. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Jace Lindgren, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balbanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistant is Nicole Samara. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.